Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. I hope you're all staying up to date with the essays from our fellows. We publish those over at ehn.org, my employer. Those essays are covering everything from rodent infestations to forest protection and everything in between. And we're injecting new innovative ideas and solutions into the environmental justice space. That's what we do here at this program. So stick around with us, check out our essays. The most recent one from Sabah Usmani is tapping into the power of community to make informal settlements healthier. Again, you can find that on ehn.org. And you can stay up to date on all the podcast essays and other happenings by following Agents of Change on Twitter or Instagram or sign up for our monthly newsletter at the program homepage. Today, I'm talking to fellow Kevin Patterson, a PhD student in environmental health sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. We talk about his Navajo roots, his family's personal struggle with uranium mining exposure and how it shaped his career path and what healthy, respectful partnerships between researchers and tribal communities looks like. Enjoy. I am super excited to be joined by Kevin Patterson. Kevin, how are you doing today? Hey, Brian. I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. And where are you today? I'm in New Haven, Connecticut. And speaking of space, you are not originally from the East Coast. You are from the Navajo Nation, growing up in New Mexico near the tribe's reservation. So tell me about this place that you grew up. Tell me about your upbringing and how it shaped you. Yeah. Um, So you're right that I grew up in a town called Farmington, New Mexico. Um, Town may be like up for debate here now because uh, (laughs) with every year, uh, Farmington, every time I go back, it feels like the my hometown is growing a little bit bigger each time. I think technically, by definition, it's a city um, and probably one of the larger sort of um, metro areas for for a couple hundred miles, you know, around, I think the next sort of equal size city could be like Durango, 45 minutes north across the border in Colorado. But um, I grew up in Farmington. It's a border town to my reservation, the Navajo Nation. Um, and uh, I feel like there was no sort of separation between the two um, until really getting, uh, moving through like middle school and high school and coming to understand that, um, some of my friends like had never been to the reservation. And even though it's like 15 minutes away from where our school was, so it sort of created the separation of an understanding that, you know, this was one place and then Farmington was sort of its own thing, um, which I previously hadn't really thought of that. Uh, that spatially before that difference. Um, and so I, I think I had a great childhood growing up in Farmington. Um, I, uh, grew up going to Catholic school and then 
um, when it then went into public school for middle school and high school. Um, but I think the changes that Farmington has had from, you know, its early inception of when, you know, the town was founded and then to now uh, has certainly become this kind of uh, space where a lot more, I, I would say like a lot more um, natives have been moving into the city, um, but has always been primarily supported by, you know, the reservation that's there with people coming in to commute for buying, you know, groceries or supplies for the week or next two weeks. Um, and then also just the industries that um, have existed there since I was a kid uh, with oil and gas, um, oil and natural gas. And so, uh, yeah. So I think we hear a lot about um, how if we went back to some tribal teachings, tribal's ways of tribal ways of life, that we would be better off environmentally. And I and I I'm painting with a broad brush, but specifically talking to your experience, I don't know how much cultural teachings were a part of your childhood, but can you talk about some of the similarities and intersections that you see with the Navajo cultural teachings and the broader of mission of environmental justice that you work on now? Yeah. Um... I think like my, you know, my upbringing from my mom's side, my, my grandmother or my Masana really was, uh, and, and I would say my grandfather too, before he passed, um, through them to my mom, then to me, a lot of those teachings about how we interact with the environment, the way, uh, we should see the environment as we see ourselves, that these things are not so mutually exclusive when we talk about, you know, what happens even globally um, to the environment, um, because uh, what eventually gets put at stake is like, you know, our health involved with those cycles that are both, you know, naturally happening, but also um, sped up through, you know, anthropogenic activity that's occurring every day. Um, so I, I don't quite like integrate into, or I don't do it as well right now in starting out in my, so I, it's just started my first year in my program. And that is sort of a question that I've been trying to kind of figure out more of like where these oral teachings, these oral traditions, um, this sense of uh, cultural identity sort of fits in, or if it does fit in into the work that I do. Um, and my advisor really has helped in, you know, putting into perspective that all knowledge and like all things and, and a similar teaching that I think my grandmother has always instilled um, in my family that, uh, you know, the, 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 these all systems of knowledge are so important to any of the work that we do that one is not a uh, or one doesn't necessarily have like a hierarchy over the other when we talk about the same thing. Um, when we're talking about like how these like in my work specifically, like, you know, the composition of like heavy metals, whether it be in like groundwater, well water or um, in the food that we eat, uh, we can think about it, of course, in these more uh, 
uh, nuanced and heavier scientific terms of, uh, you know, what, uh, what is mechanis- uh, like the mechanisms of like what's happening when we ingest it and the dangers of that. Um, but it's not so, I feel a different, a different story isn't being painted when we talk in terms of like what has always been known through, uh, the way we respect the environment and the way we understand how, um, like what is in the environment and in mostly through or these early oral traditions and, uh, from the creation stories in Navajo culture to, uh, the way we conduct ourselves through kinship, um, in our families, that it is all at a level of respect. And I think, um, it, it's a way that I've been trying to like further, you know, find ways to, combine in the work that I do that uh, hopefully by the next time you ask, uh, I can do so in a much more uh, eloquent answer in a more (laughs) defined way. No, that makes what you said makes a lot of sense, especially the beginning portion reminds me of a quote that I really like, and I can't remember who it's ascribed to, but that we are nature too, (laughs) that people are nature too. I think we often think of ourselves as separate and we look out there and that's nature, um, but we are nature too. And I think that's, that's an important point, especially for someone who's, who's looking at exposure science like you are. And I want to talk about some of your work, but before we get to that, uh, what is a defining moment or event that has shaped your identity up to this point? Yeah, I think um, with what um, has kind of pushed me to the work that I do now and um, has been a big source of like why I want to look at, you know, these uh, understand not just the mechanism of like what causes what, but, um, you know, get a broader sense of like how this affects the community that I come from. Um, my mother in, when I was, was about like in the eighth grade, I think this was back in like 2009, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer at that time. And, uh, I hadn't quite like come to understand like first, like how does one get breast cancer? And then also, um, finding kind of like this, or at least the time understanding that like, this was just something that happens. Um, and that may be like more motivated by like these individual factors of like lifestyle, but, you know, through learning more about, or, you know, critically understanding how there's much more to the picture, uh, beyond these individual level factors that can, that can, you know, give rise to certain, um, conditions like this. And, uh, I started to think more about like environmentally, like what, what are sources of, you know, these, um, what could be environmental sources of, uh, cases like this? Because I remember hearing from my mom and from my aunts that they also like had heard of, or they were friends with people, um, that were getting other cases of cancer, uh, be that mostly breast cancer. And I just remember at this time that there was, I was like thinking about like all these people, I mean, very close to my relatives, but like thinking about like, um, you know, what was the source of this? And like, is this something that just happens? Um, 
and questions that I didn't really quite connect until uh, in my later years of undergrad and thinking about, you know, the history of not just, you know, where I was situated, but also my family and the movement of, you know, the exposures that they came into contact with over time. Um, so, so my grandfather was a uranium mine worker at the time, and along with his brothers and relatives, uh, they either worked in cases daily directly in the mines or, um, you know, more tangential to it, um, and often without, you know, protective equipment. And so my aunt used to tell me stories of like how her, my grandmother used to like take his clothes at the end of the day, hand wash them and, uh, you know, and then prepare meals, you know, thereafter mixing. So, you know, there's this like daily contact of this exposure that was happening um, that I just like didn't, I, you know, it just sort of like started clicking like these, uh, the understanding at the time too for my family and the community, uh, there was no, you know, warning or there was no sort of uh uh express precaution about what they were doing. So into today and thinking about how, you know, I mean it was so long since then, so you know, I can't say like how much of that exposure is could be attributed to the rise of like you know certain cases such as my mom but nonetheless it it is still a question that comes to mind when i think about how um my mom's uh breast cancer case that uh there are other families and other people in my community and others alike that are experiencing that have experienced the same thing. But when we think about reasons for, I think the environment is less of what comes at the forefront of the cause. And um, I think framing that now is more important than ever. And can you speak in a broader sense about the dangers of uranium specifically? You were talking about uranium and family exposures, and, and that comes from a deeply personal place. So what what are some of the kind of health dangers and exposure risks of uranium and why are some Western tribes at such a higher risk for exposure? Yeah. Um, so I think I gave, I provided a pretty classic example of like when people think about uranium exposure um, is, you know, the, the cancerous effects of it through its radioactivity. Um, but a lot of my research actually is more concerned with understanding the chemical effect of uranium. And I think with the um, the general understanding is, I think most people kind of situate themselves as, as like, this is something that, you know, the Southwest or like regions where uranium mining is occurring, that this is, you know, that's a sort of their problem or like this doesn't quite concern me, but actually um, and through in Haynes data that has shown that um, it is, it is well understood that that everyone is sort of exposed to very low doses, um, whether that is um, through the food that we eat 
for uh, the water that we drink. And inhalation is kind of more of a concern, like ambient air exposure in places in the Southwest where, you know, it kind of just combines and with certain like particulate matter. Um, and, and that has been a research in, uh, for a lot of institutions situated out there looking at those uh, air pollution exposures. But um, when we think about like the, uh, the, the chemical effect of uranium, um, it, we know that it has uh, at high doses in animal models um, a pretty adverse tox- uh, pretty adverse effect when it affects uh, primarily the kidneys. Um, and so a lot of there, there's been uh, cases associated with chronic kidney disease um, and even further that uh, it deposits into bone mostly, but we do excrete like, most of it, most uranium that we do ingest. Um, and so it's not to necessarily here at all, like cause any alarm for the general public. But when we think about like those exposed to elevated levels at chronically over the life course, I think that's where it's a little bit more murky in understanding what ha- what is happening here in these communities, primarily communities that have had histories of you know, uranium mining in their areas, not just native, but like a lot of other rural communities that are uh, faced similarly with these, um, with a reality of having like stories similar to mine of, uh, you know, this was happening and they didn't know any, like they didn't know any better about what was, uh, have uh, what they were doing to their health or like the possible impact. So, um, that that is sort of the field that I or the work that I do um, in kind of understanding these questions of uh, who is most at you know risk for exposure and not just exposure itself but like this elevated exposure um, and uh, further understanding mechanistically like what is happening. And I should say that it's not just a Southwest problem. As you said, when I moved into my house, I'm in a rural area. We had elevated uranium in my water here, actually. And I am in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, pretty far away from the Southwest. So we actually put in a reverse osmosis system that took care of it, but it was higher than recommended levels. So um, test people. If you're, if you're on a private wall, test, <laughs> test your water. Don't, don't be alarmed, but, but you should test. So Kevin, what is some of the, can you give us a, a sense of some of the stuff that you're working on now? Um, what are some research projects that you're currently engaged in? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned before, I'm a trainee with the Columbia Northern Plains Superfund Research Program. And there's where a lot of my work is situated in just understanding um, heavy metal exposure through water primarily. So that, that was a great point that you made earlier about private water well testing. Uh, currently in the U.S., uh, well, uh, private wells aren't under EPA regulation. Um, so if for and, and I feel that oh, we know that that impacts um uh, a lot of people living in more rural areas across the U.S. that are sourcing their water from uh, private wells. So, and these are areas of like both this 
unknown known occurrence of like elevated uh, heavy metal exposure, whether that is just uranium or arsenic um, that uh, compared to counties with, you know, public data on their community water systems that are regulated by EP the EPA, um, uh, private well water uh, tends to be at a, a uh, higher occurrence for a lot of these, uh, or just at a higher concentration. Um, so it brings more into perspective understanding. Um, we do know a lot, of course, of like, you know, these, not just like uh, inorganic contaminants, but a lot of organic contaminants in uh, well water. But uh, typically, I think a lot of research has. Uh, put a single exposure or contaminant of concern to like a single outcome. And obviously, as we know that we are exposed to many things every day and it's the co-occurrence and the mixtures of uh, these various toxicants and heavy metals that uh, we're trying to understand its impact and its rise to certain outcomes of interest Um but also to mitigate that and eventually eradicate the the disparity in people accessing safe and clean uh, drinking water. We talked about uranium mining, which uh, is a pretty clear example of an extractive industry. But another kind of way that there's been extractive relationships is when research is done in and around tribal communities. It's often been done in an extractive way and not with the community in mind. So I'm wondering, when you think of healthy, respectful partnerships between researchers and tribal communities, what does that look like? And do you have any examples of that being done well? I think um, a great example of the researcher to any sort of tribal nation or tribal organization uh, collaboration that I know of, um, at, at least at the forefront of the work that I do right now, because a lot of my work is situated through this cohort study, but it's called the Strongheart Study. And uh, currently, uh, as far as I know, it's the largest epidemiologic study of cardiovascular disease in, in uh, Native populations. Um, they recruit from 13 different tribes in North and South Dakota, Oklahoma, and Arizona. And uh, it has really come out to be this, uh, uh, in some ways, like some authority and kind of uh, bringing into perspective these uh, environmental contaminants that exist and how mechanistically they are kind of occurring in this population, uh, what is elevated there. Um, but also coming uh, to better illustrate, you know, what can be done as an intervention. Um, and water has been one of the direct pathways of, you know, a lot of these exposures that are occurring. And so um, I know that through this initiative that there have been uh, water interventions that have taken place and that the study of the intervention itself is underway. But um, I feel that this is such a great example of both including um, the tribal members, the participants, 
the 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 data sovereignty there is like it it the tribe owns it and so um i think when we have to think about like how like ownership in general uh when it comes to these large studies it's you would think like uh, you know maybe it's the funding organization here through nih or uh through the researcher team themselves or the researchers but i find that like with um you know honest and uh, uh, a healthy collaboration uh, begins to under or starts with understanding that the community that you work with, especially tribes, are you know really the authority over like how their data is used and um, what questions are approved to be investigated. And um, I, I just find that that is something that is going on with like I'm sure with a lot of other um similar studies and similar partnerships but with every the everyday work that I do that isn't a pretty strong example there of what we can learn from and continue to emulate but also like the lessons learned from from that so so Kevin um what are some ways that you would like to or that you've seen others communicate science and findings to tribal communities I'm especially thinking of those who may only speak their traditional language, and maybe that's how they consume information. Um, what what do you think about uh, this front? If you're seeing it done, or if you'd like to do it in the future yourself, I think an initiative that is being undertaken, um, maybe not because I I really have only um, sort of uh, I, I really only operate in the space of academia right now with the research that I do. But outside of that, I know that there is a lot of research that is primarily community driven in terms of like whether it's a tribal health board or if it's a local tribal um, health related organization. Um, and at the forefront of that, like the level of communication there is already being um, it's at it's at the like the question formulation. It's. Like the community is so involved at that point that um, I find that that, at least from my understanding, that is like the best way for any work out of that is communicated. Like they because they're already in the picture, they're already in the way that the question is being designed, and as the research carries forward. Um, in the case when it comes to like the work, like from whatever. I would publish or others, uh, my peers, like a lay summary report has to be produced and that has to be uh, approved and communicated by um, uh, representatives on, um, the, for instance, in the strong heart, there is an over the, there's a board that oversees that. Um, and so I think we can hope that like, you know, it's communicated enough that there is a lay understanding um, to it, but uh, I feel that as I'm coming more into this work and understanding, like even like talking to my friends here about the work that I do, uh, it's a little hard for them to even like quite understand exactly like what this result means or like, you know, what this method is doing. Um, and so uh, I, I'm not quite at like that for myself at that stage to um, surely understand, especially when it comes to like 
tribal communities and communicating that in their respective languages. Like um, an example of, of, you know, that particular uh, both communication and translation recently with the past Navajo Nation administration, um, the executive director of the Navajo Department of Health, Dr. Jill Jim, when COVID happened and I was watching the uh, live broadcasted um, sessions happening at uh, the Navajo um, Department of Health uh, seminars and announcements, um, she was both speaking in Navajo and English and um, there was also another others there to translate um, to to both like uh, delegate representatives across the reservation to then also, you know, get further word out to their constituents. But um, I just uh, I think it's such a imperfect way of communicating what I know through my training. And even like more. Like both, like you provide the lay summary, but then translating that even into Navajo uh, takes some steps to even further break down, like maybe certain sentences or phrases that don't have any direct translation. And so it maybe you're not fully getting to like convey maybe the alarm or the concern in what your message is or what the result is itself. And Kevin, what is, well, I should say real quick, so at EHN, we have been translating a lot of our work into Spanish, and I can tell you, uh, to try to capture the complexities and nuance of language and communicate the same thing in two languages is something that I did not understand when we first started doing this. Uh, and that, of course, is is just one language, and um, now you're dealing with how many different tribal languages. And um, so totally understand that it is a huge undertaking um, to try to communicate in different languages and stuff. But I appreciate your, I appreciate your response. And I'd like to ask folks, because uh, this work can be hard uh, to deal with uh, pollutants and communities and illness. What makes you optimistic? Yeah, I'm really optimistic with, you know, coming into this field, I think there's a lot of outside of it that it can sort of seem doomsday, especially with the recent pandemic. And when I tell people that I do uh, or I'm being trained in epidemiology, that uh, there's an immediate like kind of hesitation or like breath taken. And I have to then say like, Oh, well, I mean, specifically, you know, I look at, you know, these environmental contaminants on population health, but I'm optimistic about the direction of the field just because it's so interdisciplinary with forming these collaborations with other departments and, you know, other researchers in various other fields of study, not even just like situated in STEM, that it takes the work that we do um, to, I think, points in which I wouldn't even consider that are may make even a greater impact or or more direct line of impact to, I think, ultimately the communities that we're trying to uh, improve when it comes to just and specifically, again, to my work of accessing uh, safe water, clean water, uh, but even the broader sense, just living in a healthier environment um, that I think obviously with like when we think about all these exposures and like what can I do, um, 
I think in just by part of like the the partnerships and um, the community work that does happen is what is pushing me through, you know, continuing to like investigate like what's happening with my communities and others alike. Uh, because I think you can, I, I feel some days I can get siloed into thinking like, wow, like what, you know, where, where, where are we going at this point? Or like, you know, or how in my lifetime, like, will we come to this, you know, resolution? But I think putting myself more presently and thinking about like all the incredible, um, work that is happening right now but work that is jointly supported by multiple different people from different perspectives and angles of their work that i think i know that we will get there to a resolution and that that's what makes me optimistic for sure and i have found writing about the environment for more than a decade now that change is incremental and even though you want things to change overnight it's important to take a step back and realize that things are uh hopefully in most spaces inching along so kevin i want to give readers a quick peek behind the scenes so we were both at a retreat for this cohort and i happened to know because I was out on a run, that you were out on a run one morning, and I believe we were the only two separately running before the retreat started. So I wanted to ask you if you get a chance to run a lot these days. Yeah, no, I try to make it a habit at least like two to three times a week that on days when I'm not in New York that I am running uh, when I do get back here. It's such a great like uh, um, moment for me to just clear my head and to you know, not be so muddled in both, you know, the atmosphere of what is, you know, the city in New York, but even, you know, here and being in my apartment that uh, it's a nice time to just kind of uh, have that moment of meditation. For sure. I, I, I cycle a lot more than I run. And I can say when I go on a bike ride, I have to put on all of this gear and weird shoes and tight clothes. And I love it. But there's something about just putting on your tennis shoes and going out for a run, no matter where you're at, whether you're traveling at a conference or at your house. It's just a very simple, um, beautiful way to decompress. So I totally agree. So Kevin, this has been a whole lot of fun to learn more about you and your research. And we are, we have reached what I consider the fun portion of things and we're near the end. So before my last question, I have three rapid fire questions where you can just answer with one word or a phrase. The thing that makes me most unique is. My friends say I am the most Aquarius person they know. <laughs> I don't quite fully understand what that means, but, and I'm not saying that that makes me unique in any way, but I'm sure there are many Aquariuses that may be listening to this podcast, but, uh, it is something that I hear a lot. So, uh, that, that, I mean, that's the first thing that came to mind there. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to have to Google, um, <laughs> characteristics of an Aquarius after this. Something that always makes me smile is, um, we recently just got, um, well, not so recent, but uh, we got a, a a little cat. Uh, her name's Kashi, and you know she can both be like get me so mad sometimes. But I think I, at the end of it, I always 
brings me to a smile when I think about like, oh, like I'm doing this whole day, you know, uh, of a commute or like doing whatever uh, in in the city. And then, but thinking about like, oh yeah, well, I get to come back to my cat. And (laughs) usually that'll always bring a smile to my face. For sure. As someone who has recently dealt with aging pets and saying goodbye, I can tell you to enjoy Enjoy the hell out of the early days, even if it's occasionally frustrating because you will miss them. If I had an entire day free from responsibilities, I would likely. I mean, I. I I think honestly, I would. And then this was maybe this is controversial, but I would likely just not do anything. <laughs> I feel like I do way too much every <laughs> single day. Uh, and so it would be nice, you know. You know what, actually, I think in my my phrasing of like nothing is more of me going to my favorite spot in New Haven, which is uh, Atticus on Orange Street. Uh, It's this market there. And I used to last summer early in the morning, like if I if it was after a run or if it's just me having to be there that I love just getting a coffee, sitting outside and uh, reading a really good graphic novel. Yes. Well, that sounds lovely. I'm a fellow graphic novel lover, which brings me to my last question. And it doesn't have to be a graphic novel, but what is the last book that you read for fun? Yeah, I mean, in this case, it will be a graphic novel for me because uh, I sometimes I need some light reading in my life. And uh, I've always loved just having illustrations to what I have mostly uh, with getting that out of uh, graphic novel reading. So the last one I read that I thought was really great um, was The Nice House on the Lake. Um, I am a big fan of just like this post-apocalyptic, you know, setting of just understanding how people navigate the world at that moment. And as my close friends would argue that, you know, in some cases, maybe we are living in one right now, but... Uh, I just, uh, yeah, I find that just then that genre in graphic novel reading that any, any book is for sure going to be on my list. Kevin, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, that's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin, and I hope you learned something. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org, and while you're there, click the Donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate, review, subscribe, and give us some love. This podcast was written, recorded, and produced and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Amizota. Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Venus Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Pottington Bear. Email our team at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly newsletters at the program homepage. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when we have something different in store for you all. I will speak with Tina Johnson and Jewel Jones, both community members from the We Act for Environmental Justice organization. Have a great week, folks. Music.